It's my privilege to bring the word this morning. The reading comes from Acts chapter 2, 36 to 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptised, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Thank you, Phil, for reading for us this morning. And let me add my greeting to everyone, uh, to, to Tim's greeting, and welcome everyone who's here today, especially if you're visiting us or with us for the first time today. I know a lot of people do like to join us at the beginning of a new year. And perhaps today is a really great day to join us at the beginning of not just a new year, but a new sermon series, a new term. I encourage you to please have your Bible open at Acts chapter 2 so you can follow with us this morning. Sorry, I'm just getting the right notes up. There we go. Well, imagine you woke up once one morning and you got a letter telling you that you had been selected to play for the Socceroos. From this day forward, you would be a professional soccer player and a member of the national team. Wouldn't it be strange then if you never did anything about it? You know, you never went to a game, you never went to practice, you never went to a team meeting, you never did any training. You never wore the team uniform, you never got yourself a ball or a pair of boots, you just carried on with your life. But one day, you decided to walk onto the field in the middle of a championship match. What do you think would happen? You certainly wouldn't be helping win the game, and everyone else would probably wonder what on earth you're doing there. Or imagine, in a similar way, you started a new job one day, but you never turned up for work. You never checked your emails, you never completed a project... You never did any professional development. You never put your mug in the office kitchen. You never gave out a single business card. How do you think your first performance review would go? In fact, I'd be surprised if the boss even knew who you were. And of course, you'd be a bottleneck to the company's aims and goals. Now, in a similar way, wouldn't it be bizarre to be saved by Jesus and belong in his kingdom forever without actually living like it? Only Jesus saves us. But you know what? He actually gives us a whole bunch of wonderful gifts to help us enjoy what he achieved for us on the cross, to help us become more like him, to help us prepare for spending an eternity in heaven with him, and to further the gospel in this age so that others can do the same. Now, this term, our sermon and study series, is based on some of these gifts that God has given us in Christ these basics of the Christian life. So we can appreciate them and we can use them and enjoy them the best way we can for Jesus' glory in our lives. That's why we've called it, What Now? You've become a Christian, what now? 
Well, the Bible gives us a pattern for life following Jesus based around some of these things. Now, I do hope you've grabbed a study guide on the way in. It looks like this. It was also in the email that went out on Thursday. If you prefer a digital copy, it's all in there. This would be very helpful to you, especially in joining a small group Bible study. And I'd really encourage you to do that this term. Get together with other Christians during the week, read the Bible together, pray through it together with them, and learn together with them. If you want to find a Grace Community Group, the easiest way to do that is to open to the introduction page. There's a little thing at the bottom, a QR code or a web link. You'll be able to find all of our groups and get in touch with the group leaders that way to join a group, maybe in your area or at a time which works for you. Otherwise, do chat to myself or one of the other elders. We'll help you find a group. Right, well, let's pray, and then we'll get into God's word together. Join me as we ask God to grant his blessing on his word. Please be generous with your servants, gracious Lord, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we're going to start our new series talking about baptism. But we just go for the jugular straight out the gate. God says in his word that we should baptize those who have a right to God's gospel promises declared in Jesus. And whichever way you look at it, the biblical sign of baptism is the outward sign which marks the beginning of a person's discipleship journey with the Lord Jesus. If you were baptized after you learned to trust that Jesus died, was buried, was raised to heaven for you, your baptism was a sign of your entirely new life in Christ. And if you were baptized baptized as a young child or as a baby, and only later did the Lord open your eyes of faith to his grace in Christ, your baptism still marked the beginning of your journey of discipleship. Now, you and I both know that baptism can be a, a tense issue for Christians, There are many passionately held and biblically argued convictions about who should be baptized, how much water should be used, and even what baptism actually does. But I certainly don't believe it's an issue which ought to divide us. Unfortunately, as I was reminded this week, there is no 1 Corinthians chapter 16 which definitively gives us answers about all these questions. But that doesn't mean we need to be unclear about what the Bible does say or about what we sincerely believe the Bible to be saying around the rest, so long as we do it humbly and graciously, and we keep the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ front and center in everything we do. And that's certainly what I'm hoping to do today, not so that we appreciate baptism as a kind of religious practice, but so ultimately we appreciate the gospel of God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, which, of course, baptism points us to. Now, the thing to know about baptism is that it's all about the gospel. If you take nothing else away from today, take that away. Baptism is about the gospel. In fact, baptism gives us a picture of the gospel that we can see. Jesus gives us two pictures like this in the Bible. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. And sometimes these things are called sacraments. Sacraments is a kind of old word which really is borrowed from the New Testament. It means that something is revealed. So something invisible is made visible. At the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is with his disciples on the mountain, he tells them to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there we have the command of Jesus to be baptized. And a bit earlier on in the gospel story, of course, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, uh, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's very important to remember that these things are things that Jesus has told us that we must do. So these activities, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're both commanded by Jesus for his people because they point us back to him and what he will do. They are God's picture to help us see the gospel. Now, it's a bit like a school or a lesson at school or at uni. I wonder if um, anyone remembers the days before PowerPoints and those sorts of things when you just had to listen to whatever the teacher told you. Uh, but then suddenly you were able to see up on the screen what he was talking about, and suddenly we were more engaged. Well, God knows that we worked like that, and so in a way, baptism and the Lord's Supper are a bit like God's PowerPoint. It's engaged not just our ears, but our eyes as well, so we can see and understand the gospel. But these pictures don't just show us something, they also tell us something. And there are two particular things that these sacraments tell us about the gospel. First of all, it says that they are signs of the gospel. So in baptism and the Lord's Supper, God tells us what the gospel is. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in a moment. But in the case of baptism, the water applied to someone tells us that the gospel is about the washing away of sin. It's about marking someone out in new identity. It's about new life in Christ. And of course, in the Lord's Supper, we're told that the The gospel is about Jesus suffering and dying so that we could be forgiven, about a new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what these things tell us about the gospel. And so, yes, they are signs of the gospel. Secondly, they're also what we call seals of the gospel. So they tell us that the gospel can be trusted. And that's why real and tangible things like water and bread and wine or grape juice are used for these special events and activities in the life of the church. Because as surely as we can touch and feel the water and touch and feel and taste the bread and the grape juice, that's how certain we can be of God's gospel promises fulfilled in Christ. That's the point of them being physical. They're called seals of the gospel sometimes because it's like an official seal on an official document telling you that you can trust what's, that what's written inside is the authoritative word of someone important. The seal doesn't make the document effective, of course, but it does confirm what it is, that it can be trusted. And so in these two sacraments, God speaks the gospel to us. And for this reason, a Christian a long time ago named Augustine actually called them visible words, visible words telling us the gospel. But we've got to be careful here. Just imagine for a moment you'd never been to church in your life never read the Bible, all this stuff was completely new for you. You decide to go to church one morning, and the minister starts grabbing a jug and walking around and pouring it over people. doesn't say anything, just kind of randomly, you know, soaks people. And then they together start handing out really small bits of bread and little shot glasses of some kind of vaguely red grapey liquid, and in a kind of silent choreographed way, they all eat and drink together. And then they carried on with the next song. You'd probably think all that was a little bit weird. And you'd be right. Because the act of baptism and the act of the Lord's Supper don't do anything by themselves. They're not magical rituals. 
They need to go together with God's words in the Bible, explaining and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, carried into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And so that's why here at Grace, if you ever see a baptism or you take part in the Lord's Supper with us, we read lots of the Bible as we do it. It's God's word and his spirit which make the sacrament do anything. Excuse me. So that's just a little explainer about what baptism and the Lord's Supper are. They are ways that we see, we understand, and we learn to trust the gospel commanded by Jesus. And for these reasons, we should value them and make the most of them for the sake of the gospel in our own lives. Now, on the page in your uh, order of service, you'll see that there's an outline. This takes us to the second part of our outline and what, the, what baptism says about the gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so back in Acts chapter 2, that passage that Phil read for us, it records what, what is really the first Christian baptism. The Holy Spirit has been given to the disciples after Jesus returned to heaven. And as a result, they went into Jerusalem and they proclaimed the works of God. They, they basically preached the gospel. And all the Jews that were there from every nation under heaven heard these words in their own language. It was an incredible thing going on. And when confronted by the reality of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and convicted of their own sin, they say to Peter, who's kind of you know, leading this, this evangelistic rally, they say, they say to Peter, well, what should we do? And in verse 38, Peter tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 38, Peter helps us to understand what baptism says about the gospel. Firstly, you'll see that Peter knows the difference between what is visible and what is invisible. Sorry. That's why he tells them to repent and be baptized. Repentance is something invisible, at least initially. The Bible talks about repentance. It means turning away from sin and turning towards God in Christ. Being baptized doesn't necessarily mean a person has repented. It is a sign that those who truly repent of their sin and turn to God and Jesus have a right to the gospel promises fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so you've got the invisible repentance and the visible baptism. So we're talking about gospel promises. What are those gospel promises? Well, baptism shows us basically three. In the gospel, we have a new relationship in Jesus a new status in Jesus, and a new life in Jesus. I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about these this morning. So number one, in the gospel, gospel promise, we have a new relationship with God in Jesus. Baptism tells us that the gospel promises a new relationship with God in Jesus. So notice how the command in verse 38 is to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And remember from Matthew 28 a little earlier, it said to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Being baptized into someone's name means you identify with them. You belong with them. You belong to them. 
It's a little bit like when a couple get married and the, the bride takes on the name of her husband. There's an identifying thing that happens, a belonging thing that happens there. Bible actually says in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, just to be clear, it's not baptism itself that gives us a new relationship with Jesus, but it's, it's the gospel. But baptism simply visualizes and confirms what the gospel does. And it's a wonderful thing, because, because of our sin, we're enemies with God. We don't belong in God's presence. We don't have any good relationship with God. But because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that relationship is completely transformed and we're now welcomed into God's family as his children. We're given the family name. It's a really wonderful thing. And as water is applied to someone being baptized, it's meant to look a little bit like a rubber stamp, marking out who we belong to. But it gets better still because a new relationship with God in Jesus for me also means a new relationship with God in Jesus with those others who he has a new relationship with, which is why we baptize in the context of a local church. So baptism marks where we belong among God's people, with God's people, among those that God has also made his gospel promises to. And that's why in Acts 2, verse 41, we're told that those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow, what a, that was a very successful gospel message by all accounts. So the church grew by 3,000 in one day. Baptism was a sign of their new relationship with God in Jesus and with his people because of the gospel. Well, number two, the second thing that baptism tells us about the gospel, that we have a new status before God in Jesus. In other words, the gospel promises that Jesus' death and resurrection totally forgives sin. The command in verse 38 is to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Not be baptized so that your sins be forgiven, but be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. One comes before the other. Baptism doesn't forgive sins. Jesus' death and resurrection does, but that's why baptism is meant to look a little bit like having a wash. So in Acts 22, Paul retells what Ananias said to him at his conversion. Ananias said to Paul, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Again, it's not the baptism that washes away sins, it's calling on the name of Jesus that washes away sins. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, all of our sins, past, present, and future, can be washed away, never to come up against us ever again, never for God to count them against us ever again. Baptism is a sign of our new, forgiven, not guilty status before God in Jesus. Well, thirdly, baptism tells us that the gospel promises new life from God in Jesus. And this is the connection with the promised gift of the Holy Spirit in verse 38. God gives his spirit to give new life to those he saves in the gospel of his Son. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul connects spiritually dying and rising with Jesus very closely to the physical sign of baptism to remind us why Christians can't just keep on sinning the way we used to do. So he says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So yes, baptism is about a new life in Christ, dying to the old life and rising to a new life. Now, I'm not planning to talk a lot about how much water we should use today, but I must say that being fully immersed in water for baptism certainly helps us with the picture of dying and rising to new life here, doesn't it? I heard a story once of a minister who was asked to do a full immersion baptism. He'd never done one before. And so he went to the pool with a young man and the you know, people from the church around And after he pushed the guy under, he kind of lost his place in his notes. And when he finally brought the candidate up again, the guy was gasping for air. But I'm sure the sense of dying and rising to new life wasn't lost on that new Christian. So yes, being being immersed, I can see the, the reference there. But, you know, because our new life from God comes by him pouring out his spirit on us, pouring out water also makes sense, which is why it's our usual practice here. So because of Jesus' death and resurrection, those who identify with him are forgiven by him and who also join him in dying to their old life and rising to a new life which continues forever, sustained by his Holy Spirit within them. And so this is what baptism tells us about God's gospel promises. These promises fulfilled in Jesus that they, not baptism itself, But these promises bring a new relationship, a new status, and a new life in Jesus. And baptism then gives us this graphic picture to help our understanding, a physical reminder that we can definitely trust these promises. As real as the water is, so real is the gospel. So that's what what baptism says about the gospel. I'm going to talk thirdly about our final heading, what baptism says about a person. Because the gospel is about Christians more, sorry, it's about Christ more than it's about Christians. Better get that right. It's about Christ more than it's about Christians. And because baptism shows us the gospel, it's actually far more about God than it is about the person being baptized. So in baptism, as in the gospel, we start with what God does, not what we do. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are both primarily about something God does for us, not something we do for God. And actually, baptism doesn't even say that a person is certainly saved. There are many baptized people who've not responded to the gospel with faith. And there are many unbaptized people who have. I had the privilege a number of years ago of baptizing a lady who was 83, who'd been a Christian all her life. We simply can't see what's truly going on in someone's heart. So it's worth keeping that in mind. There's an invisible thing going on here. There's also a visible thing. So what is baptism saying about a person? Well, when the church baptizes someone, as happens here in Acts chapter 2, we're saying that to all outward appearances, God's gospel promises belong to them. So it's right to apply the sign and seal of those gospel promises to them for their growth in Christ. And obviously this applies to those who uh, turn to Jesus consciously, who become Christians. But it also applies in the case of the children of believers. I know not everyone will share our conviction on this, but what we believe the Bible is teaching is simply this, that God's gospel promises also belong to the children of Christian parents. 
These are children who'll be raised to pray to God as their father. He'll be raised to read the Bible as God's word to them. He'll be raised to be part of the church family as their spiritual family, a place where they belong, and encouraged and urged finally to take hold of those gospel promises for themselves by trusting in Jesus. You know, it would be a very strange thing for Christian parents to, uh, you know, gather for prayer at home and to say to their, their four-year-old, look, would you just go and sit over there for a moment? We're going we're gonna to pray. Uh, but it's, you know, you don't get to join us in that until you make a profession of faith. Or to say, uh, listen, you little pagan, you're going to sit over there while we read the Bible. <laughs> now, I think we can all agree that children born to Christian parents are in an especially privileged position, taught to pray to God as their father, taught to read the Bible as God's word to them, and taught to belong to the church as their spiritual family. That's, of course, why Peter says in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so, to all outward appearances, God's gospel promises belong to them, and so it's right to apply the sign and seal of those gospel promises to them for their growth in Christ. I think, in some ways, baptism is a bit like a Zoom video call. We've become very familiar with Zoom calls in the last couple of years. But I'm sure you've had experiences sometimes where there's a lag between the audio and the video. And sometimes the words come before you see the person's mouth move. And sometimes the person's mouth moves and then the words only come later. I guess baptism is a bit like that. Because it's impossible to baptize someone at the exact moment that they're saved, isn't it? It's just a visible, physical sign of invisible spiritual realities. And in some cases, it comes before faith before the gospel promises are taken hold of by faith, and in other cases it happens after. But either way, it remains a sign and seal of the same gospel promises which God uses to nourish and strengthen our faith in Jesus. Now, I know we've done a lot of um, theological heavy lifting today, and you might have a lot to think about, a lot of questions. I know after these messages, we're going to have a, a Q&A time. I uh, hope you can join us at that, for that at uh, 10 a.m. We're also going to try and record that and tack it on to the end of the sermon podcast. But please do bring your questions, and we'll do our best to answer them from the Bible. But what I'd like to leave you with today is not a better understanding so much of baptism, but a greater appreciation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, which baptism points us to. Because that's God's intention behind baptism after all. It's not to get us wet. It's to encourage us in the gospel. So let me say to you, if you're a Christian here today, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've repented, turned away from your old life and turned towards God in Christ, and you've never been baptized, well, maybe today is the, the day to start that process. Please come and chat to one of us, uh, to myself or to Tim or any of the other elders, and we'll organize that for you. Jesus commands it. It'll be a great encouragement to you in your walk with Christ and a huge encouragement to the church as we're reminded of God's gospel promises. Secondly, if you were baptized as a child but you've never publicly made a claim on those gospel promises that were declared to you, then please have a chat to us as well. We'd love to organize for you to tell the church about how Jesus has saved you and where your hope now lies. And finally, if you have been baptized, whether it was as a child or whether it was when you came to faith later, let the baptisms of others and let your own baptism tell you again and again and again that in the gospel, God has promised you a new relationship with him in Jesus 
a new status before him in Jesus, and a new life from him in Jesus. And let those unbreakable promises from God bring you peace and joy and hope and deep assurance that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you so much for the gift of baptism. We thank you for this wonderfully visual way which proclaims the gospel to us, which reminds us that you are mighty to save, which reminds us that you wash away sins, which reminds us that you bring sinners into your family, and which reminds us that you give new life to the dead. Father, please help us this morning to appreciate and wonder again at the gospel. Help us to look back at our baptisms ourselves with assurance and joy and peace and hope. And Father, as we enjoy the baptisms of others that we hope to see in the weeks and years to come, that we would once again be strengthened in our faith for the sake of Jesus. And this we pray in his name and for his glory's sake. Amen. Uh, am I on? Can you guys hear me? Cool. Um, we're going to get our Q&A underway in just a moment. Um, so how this is going to work is we'll have about 15 to 20 minutes of questions um, with Bob and Clint. We've got this thing called Slido. Um, so you'll see it on the screen. You can type on your phone slido.com. You put in that code and you can type up your questions. Otherwise, we'll have um, the opportunity for people to ask questions on the floor. So if you kind of want to come down this front aisle here, we'll um, go to questions from the floor first. Um, But if you don't feel comfortable asking questions out loud, then make use of Slido. Um, It's anonymous, so nobody will know who you are. You can ask crazy questions if you want. The other thing you can do with Slido is... If you see a question on your phone, you can give it a thumbs up, which means you like it and you want it answered. So that'll just go to the top of the list so we know people are interested in that question in particular. Um, But yeah, so we've got the option of that and the option of people asking on the floor. Um, So if you guys have any questions on the floor, come down the front here. I'll give you the mic and you can ask these guys. Otherwise, start typing online. Uh, got a question. So what does the Bible say about being baptised more than once? I said to give all the hard ones to Clint. So. Uh, that's it's interesting. Um, with those sort of issues, we, we are very uh, concerned about the person that's asking and more so than... Um, ticking sort of boxes in terms of what's right and what's wrong. If a person asked to be baptised again, uh, we, would, we would sit down with them and talk about our, our view of baptism, that um, baptism is a symbol of something that God does for us and therefore, technically, you need to be baptised 
but once because uh, it's, it's, it's water and it's itself uh, doesn't actually do anything apart from sim- symbolizing something. So baptism once is, is all that's necessary and I think that um, is spelled out in the Westminster Confession that you need to be baptized but once. But if in dealing with that person there were issues in their life and uh, it was crucial to them that they wanted to somehow express a, a new start and uh, a baptism uh, again, we would, we would endeavour to accommodate them, providing we, we could establish that they understood that it's not actually necessary. Uh, and so we, we have, I think, in occasions accommodated people along those lines. However... If people come to us and they say, well, I've been baptised in a, um, in a non-Trinitarian church, as in a Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, we would say, well, we definitely want to baptise you because the baptism you received is not the baptism that we find in the Bible, baptism in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so we would always encourage them to receive uh, what we would call Christian baptism. If they come from other churches, I mean, we've had people question their Roman Catholic baptism. Um, it, Roman Catholic baptism is Trinitarian. We would say that's, that's quite adequate. It's a, it's a symbol of what God is doing for us, uh, not, not so much about who, who applied it or where it was applied. So unless they were very, very troubled by that previous baptism, we would say that baptism is fine. But if they continued to be quite troubled about it, we would then seek to accommodate them. But we would want to establish the idea that baptism really is a symbol of what God do, does for us. It's not something we're doing for God. Uh, and um, encourage them to think these things through before they make a decision. Further comments? Yeah, sure. I, I definitely agree with what Bob said. Um, I think looking at it from the Bible's angle maybe is, like we said this morning about what baptism says about the gospel, if we baptize someone more than once, and look, let me say, I have baptized people more than once uh, when I felt it was appropriate, and that's okay. But if it says to us something about the gospel, that the gospel isn't effective once for all, then it might become a bit confusing for the church and even for that person. So um, I, I couldn't find the reference in 1 Peter, but in Hebrews chapter 9, we're reminded that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So there is something there about the once for all baptism. It doesn't depend on the person being baptized or the person doing the baptism. It depends on God's promises that once is sufficient because once is sufficient for Christ to save us. That's part of the answer. Another part of the answer is certainly in a church like ours, we find a huge parallel between circumcision in the Old Testament. In Genesis 17, God's established covenant sign. And, you know, back in the Old Testament, that sign of belonging amongst God's people, the sign of shed blood, uh, indicating a, you know, right to God's promises, it's very hard to be circumcised twice. Um, so, you know, for those reasons and others, we might discourage being baptized twice. So, that makes sense. Lee, you happy with those answers? Great. Uh, more questions from the floor? Anyone got questions? Uh, I don't have the actual same um, understanding of the Bible as you do. But I believe in uh, baptism by a believer, full body submersion, only because that's the way I see it in the Bible. Um, can you, t- like, understanding it better than me, explain why you would baptise a child 
if they do not have that um, understanding of Christ and can't make that decision. Like, uh, I don't think it's um, decisive, but I think it should be by a believer, full body, as per the Bible that I see. Cool. That works really well. There's another question online that asks, where does the Bible explicitly define child baptism? So we'll start with Clint. Um, thanks for the question, Craig. It's a really good question. And let me say this, there's no place the Bible explicitly defines child baptism. Like, I almost wish there was a chapter and verse where it says that it did, but unfortunately it's not there. Um, and I also have good friends who I consider brothers and sisters in Christ, like yourself, who differ in the way that they see the Bible on this one. And that's okay. Um, you know, I think what we agree on is what the Bible, what baptism says about the gospel ultimately. I guess the answer we'd give to that is along the lines of saying that it's not based on my profession or my faith that God does the saving. And for that reason, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper as well, it's a sign of something God does for us. So that's, that's the kind of basis under which we'd be baptizing the children of believers because it's a recognition of something God does for us rather than something we do for God. That's a very simple answer, but does that kind of go somewhere to um, answering your question? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I can see how you get there. And look, some really um, clever theologians, people who are faithful teachers of the Bible, get there that way as well. Um, I, w- some of us get there a slightly different way, and you know, that, and that's that's also okay. Um, yeah, Bobadan, if you want to add anything, yeah, sure. Uh, a lot of a lot of stories placed in the uh, in the meaning of the word baptism, uh, and. We tend to read back into the Bible the practices that we have been taught and sort of uh, ingrained in from our <coughs> from our youth. But the word itself is um, a little vague as to what it means. It generally seems to have the meaning carries the meaning of washing. There's uh, some thought that it seems to be derived from the uh, dyeing industry. The word is sort of dip, where you dip clothing into the uh, into the dye so that the clothing identifies with the color of the dye as in we identify with Christ in baptism um, you dip wine in and you pour it out somewhere so there, there's all kinds of ideas behind the word baptism no one is quite no one can say absolutely that it means immersion and so people tend to use the word immersion instead of baptism um, going back to the Old Testament times there's a mention there of uh, the prophet Elisha, he had a servant Gehazi and Gehazi was the man who used to ceremonially wash Elisha's hands and he's described as the, the guy who, who, pour, who pours water over Elisha's hands. When they came to produce the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the uh, Old Testament, which was produced about 200 BC and that's the version that Christ used, that word poured there was, was um, translated by the writers of the Septuagint as baptised. So it, can seem, it seems to mean a, a wide range of sort of washing-type ideas and um, harking back to the, the idea of um, applying it to children. Well, again, there's no specific instruction except to say that 
In the Old Testament, um, God makes it very clear to Israel that the promises are for them and for their children. So they included their children in the covenant family with with circumcision. Uh, As Clint was saying earlier, how, how do we regard our children? Well, we regard them as covenant children. doesn't make them Christians, but they are part of the privilege group that meets with us in our homes and our churches and they are to be taught about Christ and by God's grace to to become believers in their own in their own right and so in the absence of any specific command not to include children in the covenant family we we see that flowing through to the new testament yet most certainly many of those um uh, baptisms in the early part of the uh, the New Testament would be of adults because it was Pentecost, all the adults there. But then again, you have several families later on being baptised. Uh, it would be most unlikely that there were no children involved. Not just families, whole households were baptised. And so, um, um, yep, you know, you can, people will make a case for immersion. People will make a case for pouring or sprinkling. Uh, we all make a case, but in the end, we, we lack that one chapter in the Bible that would specify just exactly how you do it. Philip Jensen said, it's, is it possible that we don't really need to have that extra chapter, that there's a fair bit of flexibility involved in this whole thing? And so not to be, you know, we, we accept brothers of different perspectives, but we're not going to be too rigid about it. I just want to know, I confirmed in the Anglican Church uh, many moons ago, and I just wonder, is confirmation a form of baptism? He's asking if confirmation is a form of baptism. I'm a Presbyterian now, Bob. Um, it's interesting, you know, and when, like, like Craig's question earlier, there are different views on how this all works. And I guess, you know, confirmation, for those who are not familiar, that's when somebody's been baptized as a child. And then later on, when they come to a point where they can, I guess, own the promises of Christ for themselves, and they say, yes, I'm trusting in Jesus, they would come and, before the church, be confirmed uh, as a Christian, uh, basically saying that their baptism has become effective. Um, I guess in a way, sometimes it's said that a confirmation is like a dry baptism, and uh, I guess the opposite of that in a more Baptist church would be like a dedication of an infant, and that's kind of like a also dry baptism in some ways. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things, I guess it is, it is part and parcel. You've got to have that profession of faith at some point. Um, but it's not necessarily tied to the moment of baptism. Um, yeah, confirming the faith. Does that help with the question? Yep, Bob, do you want to? Uh, no, I think that's fine. fine. I'm happy with that, yeah. Yep. So, uh... um, my question is, where in the Bible do we see continuity between circumcision and baptism from the Old to the New Testament? Um, I can think of somewhere in Ezekiel, um, chapter 36, I believe, where it talks about um, putting a new spirit within you and cleansing with water. Um, But I was wondering if there's any other places where we see that continuity between um, the two signs as um, belonging to God. I'm going to read it, and then Bob's going to explain it. Um, So Colossians chapter 2, we read this in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having given us, uh, forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, I, I know that my Baptist friends read that slightly differently, but I'll get Bob to explain how we read it. It seems to me that is the, the, probably the connecting point in, in um, the New Testament. It, it, the point to remember is that in this, uh, this section here, it's, it's neither talking about circumcision with a knife nor baptism with water. It's talking about something spiritual, like a, a spiritual baptism, a baptism of the Holy Spirit being born again, uh, but that, it's that which is symbolised by A in the Old Testament, circumcision and b in the new testament baptism so what he's saying is what was symbolized in the old testament by baptism is being symbolized the same thing as being symbolized by the the new by uh, by baptism in in the new in the new uh, new testament and so uh, there seems to be there that this one represents that this is the same thing circumcision old testament symbolizing the work of the holy spirit circumcision in the old testament was um a, a, a cleansing ritual. Uh, they talk about uh, getting baptized. I think it's uh, Joshua rolling away the reproach of Egypt or washing away the reproach of Egypt. Uh, a new start, committed to God, circumcision. And so that's what was symbolized in circumcision. And even back there, God was saying, that doesn't mean much. I'm really after the circumcision of the heart, which was really born again by the Spirit of God. And same with this here. Baptism symbolizes the washing, a rolling away of our unclean past and the beginning of a new, of a new uh, future. But what really has to happen is the, the work of the Holy, baptism of the Holy Spirit, which truly does wash away our sins and give us a new start. So the, the big thing is the work of the Holy Spirit, symbolized Old Testament times by circumcision, symbolized New Testament times by, by baptism. To answer the question, cool. Um, you mentioned at the end there, Bob, the Holy Spirit. We've got a question online saying, "What is baptism in the Spirit?" Does one of you guys want to speak to that? It's an interesting one. I think people mean different things by it. Um, what I would say is, you know, just looking at the passage we looked at this morning in Acts chapter 2, the promise is to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's connected very closely with repentance and baptism. I don't think any believer becomes a, or is saved without receiving the Spirit of God. I think we've got to be very clear about that. You don't become saved, and then some subsequent experience happens where then you get God's Spirit. It doesn't seem to fit with what the rest of the New Testament says about being baptized into one Spirit, about receiving the Spirit of God. Um, some people talk about baptism in the Spirit, about a kind of subsequent experience where God, I guess, strengthens them or does a, a very rapid and very obvious work in their heart after they've come to faith. I think that happens. I think God works within, within us, not always just in a kind of completely linear way, but at some points he works really hard on us and equips us for some specific roles, but like he did in the Old Testament, uh, giving God's Spirit to you know, kings and prophets and others for specific tasks. But generally speaking, we're baptized in the Spirit when we become Christians. Uh, and I think, you know, the passage like this morning in Acts chapter 2, I think, um, testifies to that as well. Would you agree? Oh, great. That was one of those. Okay. Another question from the floor. Uh, 
just to go on to the theme of child baptism a bit more, uh, with what it, when someone is baptised as a child, what would you see as the spiritual difference or impact from a child who's not baptised? Is there any? And what would it be? I'm not sure I quite caught the question. Was it about the difference between a uh, baptised child and an unbaptised child in terms of in the, in the church? Um, I, I, don't, I don't believe God regards them any differently. I mean, I don't think that, that person has any less chance of being saved than that one over here. It's all down to God's grace. I think um, uh, I, I certainly encourage and prefer baptism of children, but I, I have on occasions... Uh, dedicated children of people who believe in immersion of adults only uh, and I'm, I'm happy to pray for a child in church anytime and that's what dedication is. So I, I don't believe God in his grace would in any way say I'm going to regard that person differently uh, than that one over there but uh, again it's, it's nice to have them that, that symbol applied to them just to say to the parents saying to us I'm we're regarding our children as part of the church visible, as we are the church visible, as God would. And I'm sure he does that to all our children. But it's, um, it's again, it's, I think most people of Baptist persuasion would regard their children as basically covenant children, part of the church family. Uh, they wouldn't regard them as little sort of pagan outsiders to sit over in the corner while they pray. But, but um, having baptised them, it's very um, easy to say this is part of our covenant family and part of the church in a very privileged position to be raised in the knowledge of Christ and by, by God's grace to, at some later point to become uh, believers for themselves. How would you define the difference between christened and baptism? Like christened is a word I've heard over the years mainly from... A, uh, it seems to be a more British thing. I can remember Christians uh, went to church within uh, Dubai uh, and they would uh, talk about baptism and I'd say, well, I had infant baptism. The pastor came into our home. Um, my parents never had a car at the time. We couldn't get to a church. So the pastor uh, came into our home and uh, my two sisters and I... Uh, were baptised uh, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit by the pastor of, of the church. And uh, I've got this certificate to prove it. <laughs> uh, but uh, when I would uh, discuss this with uh, Christian friends at the time in Dubai, oh, you, they'd say, you were christened. I said, I, my argument was, no, I wasn't. I was baptised... Uh, uh, with water, and the word of God uh, was spoken over me. So, in my opinion, I was baptized. So, the question in that was, what is the difference between baptism and christening? Um, I'm not sure there is a difference, really. I think christening is maybe an unhelpful cultural word that's been... I don't know where it comes from, um, but the big thing about christening is usually the naming of someone. It's a naming ceremony. Um, and I know one of the Reformed creeds does say that baptism is a naming ceremony, but it's wherein we're named with the name of Christ. Um, so, look, in that situation, I'd say, did water get applied to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the presence of other believers? 
that's, that sounds like a baptism to me, um, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think the, the, the problem with the word Christianize is that a Christi- christening rather has uh, connotations of um, baptismal regeneration where it has been used on occasions to signify that that person who was christened becomes a Christian. Uh, and that's where the, I think the connection comes. But we would say it does not. It's just water. Uh, it is a baptism. Not, the child is not Christianized or it doesn't become a Christian through through baptism. So I've gone to sort of great lengths to, to avoid using that word. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to heavy people who use it, but I just say, well, we'd, we'd call that baptism in our church. Uh, so it doesn't Christianize anybody. It, it, um, it, it's a baptism. Um, I think Martin Luther talked about, it, what did he used to say? It's, uh, I think he used a term like that, I think, back in those days. But uh, it, it's got, gone into broader culture where people feel like they'll come to you and ask you, People who don't go to church, don't profess to be Christians, will come to you and ask you to, to, to christen their child to make sure it goes to heaven. Well, we can't do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But we, we baptise people who are part of the covenant family, the children of believers, part of the covenant family. Cool. We've probably only got time for two more questions. So if there's one burning question off the floor, we'll take that. And then we'll take one from online. Mark. I'm not sure that this is a burning question, but I think we need a Presbyterian question. Um, My understanding is in the early church, basically, believers would baptise other people as they repented and turned to Christ. Today, we look at it and say it's a sacrament and should be done by an authorised person. Do I recall the Westminster Confession correctly there? So who in the Prezi Church can do it? Is it only the minister? Is it elders? Is it Where does it stop, the authority? Clint and I may have different views on this, but um, I think uh, ordinarily, if, you, if it's, um, it's appropriate for a pastor to do it because it's usually associated with the preaching of God's word, I think that's... Uh, uh, rather than sort of saying black and white, you have to go this way. I think ordinarily, nice to have a um, pastor or an elder do it. But there'll be some circumstances in which that might not be appropriate. You might be out in a country church where the pastor only turns up every three months. And so, so, uh, so I, I'm, um, I'm not quite as rigid as the Westminster Confession about as to who may administer it. But I think it needs to be done properly and with understanding of that it's a symbol of the, the gospel. I think... Um, the confession also says something about um, the Lord's Supper being administered by ordained pastors, and I'm not quite that rigid either. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good thing uh, if, if that's possible, but it's not always possible. So we need to add a little bit of flexibility there. And there are occasions when I think um, another person, out of pure necessity, could administer a baptism or a uh, or the Lord's Supper. But I think I definitely agree with that, Bob. Um, you know, the, the pattern in the Bible, I think, is Jesus commands the apostles to baptize in Matthew 28. Um, Philip baptizes the Ethiopian. He's an evangelist. Um, so the, the pattern is definitely those who've been appointed to baptize. They, you know, they carry some sort of authority to do that. But I guess, like Bob said, you know, there might be situations where that's not possible. So, um, you know, you might not have a church. You've got one Christian. The only way you're going to get a church is if that guy baptizes another guy, and then you've got a church. That's, that's great. Yeah. So, Yeah. <laughs> Does that help? Yeah, okay. 
Cool. And then one last question from online. Um, it's referring to Matthew 3, verse 7 to 12. So I'll read that out in a second. Um, it says, If John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and easy to recognize, why does Jesus, what does Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire look like today? So I'll read that passage and then I'll ask the question again. Um, so Matthew 3, continuing from verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the question again was, if John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and easy to recognize, what does Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire look like today? Hmm. Well, well firstly, John's, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and it was to symbolize that that person who was being baptised, was repenting of their past life and kind of waiting for the coming of the, uh, the next life. Um, very, very visible thing. Yeah, I think, I think John was continuing baptisms that we see in the intertestamental period. The, the person from a, a non-Jewish background wanted to, do, to worship the God of Israel. They, were, they were, had to be circumcised if you're a bloke, poor old blokes. And if they... Uh, and they had to be, to be washed as well. So those baptisms going on in that inter- intertestamental period. And John just seems to have drops out of the blue and he's baptizing people and without any kind of instructions that we can see. So that was to, that was to symbolize a work that had already taken place in their hearts. Of they wanted to turn away from what they were doing and start, start a new life. Christ came along with the answer, of course, to that. What does a baptism of the Holy Spirit look like? Well, you can't put your finger on it. But it will look like in the end a transformed life, a really a, a transformed, a changed heart and a transformed life. I mean, some of us, when we were, became believers, was just a, a revolutionary moment of um, great joy and blessing. And I know when, when Wendy was converted, uh, she who was a card carrying atheist suddenly became a, um, a very vocal Christian. I couldn't hold her down. I had to go around and uh, visit all our Air Force friends and tell them what had happened to her. I thought, you, you're kidding me. But, well, she did, and, and some of those became Christians. So uh, it's, it's uh, evidenced in a complete, complete change of heart. Uh, a person who once was a God-hater or a person who just didn't care suddenly becomes a God-believer, someone who loves God and, and who just finds God's word living and active and um, full of truth. So I did. <laughs> um, I've just been reading the passage. I, I, I definitely agree with what Bob's been saying. Um, I think in the context of what Matthew's writing, so John's talking to the Pharisees 
Um, the Pharisees didn't respond positively to John's baptism. Um, I think we read in Mark that they rejected John's baptism, basically because they didn't think they needed to repent. Uh, they thought they were okay with God. So John's calling them out on their self-righteousness. And he's kind of saying, well, if you reject my baptism, just you wait, because there's a, an even better and more powerful baptism coming later, the Holy Spirit, which is going to transform life, and the fire is, is a picture of purifying. If you don't think you need to repent, you're certainly not going to think you need new life and need purifying. So it's kind of a warning to these guys to say that, you know, this is what's going to happen if you guys reject the baptism. You're going to miss out on this as well. This is why it says at the end, um, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn. The chaffy will burn with unquenchable fire. Don't be self-righteous about this. Um, I think it, it kind of keys into what we were saying this morning from Acts chapter 2 and, and elsewhere and Romans 6. Um, that there is an element in which what Jesus does in us is an inward thing, uh, an invisible thing that changes our hearts and gives us new life, that purifies, that burns away the sin within us um, so that we're right before God. And if we don't think we need that, well, we should think twice because we might be in big trouble. So kind of where I'd go with that. So whoever asked that question, thank you. It's a very a very good question. Um, I think it's taken me a while to wrap my head around as well. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's a good question to think about. Cool. Cool. We might wrap it up there for the sake of time. Sorry if you had unanswered questions. Um, we'll have a Q&A next week on the Bible, but I'm going to pray for us as we close. Yeah. Um, just again, to reiterate, our, our preferred practice here is sprinkling and pouring of uh, believers on profession of faith and the children of believers. But if people here, by virtue of conference, of, the, of conscience, uh, adults who want, want to be immersed... We will accommodate that. You, you are more important to us than the amount of water we put on you. You are much more important to us, and we have no intention of trying to drive anybody away who doesn't agree with sprinkling and pouring. So um, if, you, if that's, that's your view, we will accommodate that, and, and God bless you. So uh, that's fair enough. Clint, you? No, we, we do not. I, I, I do not want to ever see a church dividing on baptism. Some do, but I just, I just don't want to go there anymore. So... Uh, Thanks, Bob. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the gift of baptism, that it is an outward sign that reveals an inward reality. We thank you for the gospel, that in it um, and through Jesus we are given a new relationship, a new status and new life in you. Um, Lord, we thank you for this Q&A today as well. Thank you for Clint and Bob and their willingness to answer questions. We ask, um, yeah, that if anything has been unhelpful, it will fall away and be forgotten. But if anything has been helpful, Lord, we ask that it would stick. We would remember that um, so that we can continue living for you and serving you, Lord. Um, We thank you for the hope of the gospel that we've been reminded of today, of the new life that is found in you. And we pray that we would go from here rejoicing in that good news that has transformed our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.